welcome back to The Bloody Pit. This is going to be a short, odd little episode tied into our last episode focused on the first of the 1940s Universal Sherlock Holmes film series. When we were doing that, we mentioned that uh, the team of Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce played the characters, not just in the two previous films from 20th Century Fox, but also for hundreds of episodes of the radio show that started in 1939 and extended all the way to 1950. Now, the pair of them did not play the roles of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. John Watson. For the entire run of it, after a while, Basil Rathbone left the series, and other actors picked up the Holmes role and uh, moved forward. Being that we had... Beth joining us on the last show. I asked her if she would be interested in picking out a couple of her favorite of the radio series uh, because there have been not just that series with uh, Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce, but there have been other adaptations of Sherlock Holmes, of course, across the decades. And I thought it would be cool to sandwich a couple of them into a single little small episode here and let you guys get a chance to sample some of the audio versions of Sherlock Holmes on the podcast here. See, I used to do this quite a bit. There have been, If you go back and look at the early days of the podcast, you'll find uh, an episode that focused on uh, Sergeant Preston, a.k.a. the uh, Challenge of the Yukon. You'll find an episode where I found two different audio uh, versions of, uh, or adaptations, I should say, of the uh, the story, The Horla, uh, one in which uh, Peter Lorre goes completely insane, which seems to be the point of that particular radio series at the time. So I, I thought, why not just throw this out there and give you guys a taste of the uh, the Sherlock Holmes on the radio stuff. Not that you can't find it on your own out there on the internet, because Lord knows it's out there. But this would be kind of a curated two episodes picked by Beth. Now, uh, Beth, what is it that you look for when you're listening to uh, a Sherlock Holmes story? Are you looking for a straight ad- adaptation of the stories? Or are you looking for something new that just involves the characters? Kind of something that I, I guess would go into the category of a pastiche? What what, do you, what is it you're hunting for? Um, I really haven't found that many pastiche. Mainly the ones that I have been listening to are from old-time radio. And basically they are all from the run from The New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. So they're all, all the ones that I have listened to have been based on some of the original short stories or suggested by Conan Doyle stories. So they're, they're, they may not all be canon, but they're all based on canon. So I don't know of any radio uh, stories that I've listed, listened to that are completely like made out of whole cloth. You know, oh, really? Just a, original okay. from whole cloth. I haven't found any. If you find any, please let me know. Because I would think there would have to be some out there because they made hundreds of episodes of that of that one series to begin with. So, right. well, the the New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes ran from 1939 until 1950. There were 220 episodes that had Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. And then after that, Tom Conway took over, yeah, yeah. and he replaced uh, Basil as uh, Sherlock, and he did, I think, about 39 or 40 episodes and uh, with, with Nigel Bruce, and then after that, Nigel left too, and, oh, it, was, okay. and it became uh, a mixture, Tom Conway did some... Uh, the guy who we listen to, we're going to listen to uh, eventually today, 
did some. So some other people stepped in and started filling these roles. But that is the that is the main uh, one that I've listened to is the different versions of the New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes uh, from different. Uh, I actually have an app called Old Time Radio, and you can just you can find it on Google, and that's where I get most of mine. Well, I'm curious to, uh, I mean, like I say, I think that the one we're going to listen to today, the one that you picked out from the uh, the uh, the 40s uh, with Basil Rathbone as as Holmes, uh, is actually not a straight adaptation of the story that it's suggested by, quote unquote. And as a matter of fact, you you search long and hard to find a real good connection between the what is it, the adventure at Wasiria Lodge and this story that we're gonna we're gonna play for you here first. Uh, it says suggested by near the end of the show. Once you wade through the endless ads for Petri wine, <laughs> which of course will make you want to you know guzzle enough wine so that you don't have to listen to the ads anymore. But the point of uh, of that would be if they're just gonna go suggested by, hell man, Wisteria Lodge could suggest five or six different episodes. I and guess would you consider that a fiction of pastiche? Oh, I would, cons- I would definitely. I would consider it an original story that they're trying to claim was based on an idea what? contained within one of the original stories. Short that's short all. Story. That, that's uh, one, one of the fifty-six short stories. Yeah, stories. I, I think that's all that is. I think that 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 trying to. Uh, I, they, they should. They, they would have been better off to not even try to make that claim. Just go, eh, you know, right. here's an original Sherlock Holmes story. What the hell? <laughs> because that's essentially what it is. Right, and it's. I, I like it. I'm. I know you're. May be going to go ahead and ask me this, but I'm going to jump the gun. When you were asked me to go out and look for uh, radio shows that I would I would suggest to other people, yeah, rec- to recommend to others, yeah. Um, I was thinking, I, I immediately thought, well, there are all of these radio shows that been have been done many, many times that people are probably very, very familiar with the names like. Uh, you know, study in Scarlet, um, you know, Scandal in Bohemia, Scandal, The yes. Speckled Band. It's like exactly. they've all been done a, a dozen times. Right, yeah. right. And and so you know, and you may have even seen a movie or play or adaptation, you know, of yeah. some of those. So I, what I wanted to do was go get some that weren't as well known. Uh, yeah, and uh, also. I sometimes find that the ones that are straight out of the short stories, they are sometimes are a little bit plain. They're, they don't, they come off as a, they're not boring. I love them, but I don't know if it's because I've, I've read them so many times and heard them so many times that they just don't have too much pep to them or excitement for me. Huh. And so I was looking for a couple of uh, stories to start out. These two, I feel, feel have something. And, well, are you looking for energy or what? Are you yeah, doing? well, they have a uniqueness about each one has a uniqueness about them. Okay, uh, and, okay. And so something about Holmes that he he, he he's, it it feels a little different than some of the other stories. You get to see something about him that's a little bit different in these, and they're not real twisty, but they have a little bit more twist than some of the straightforward ones. Okay. So it, it, I just I just feel like they've got. A little bit more interest to them. 
Well, I will say that uh, both of the ones that we're going to play tonight are uh, lesser-known home stories. I don't think they've been... I think you're right. I mean, they've not been uh, adapted very frequently, so... These might be uh, these might be really fresh listens, even for people who are familiar with like a lot of the Sherlock Holmes TV or film sh- or film appearances. So it might be something fresh and interesting for you, no matter how much you know Holmes, or maybe you already know these these that we'll get to. Uh, like I say, the first one only the first one is going to be from the uh, the 1940s series. So that one is more likely that you've you've probably heard, but we'll uh, we'll get to our little surprise after that one, the one that uh, is from a a later decade, shall we say? So. First up, we've got uh, from uh, September 17th, 1945, The Out-of-Date Murder. Petri Wine brings you Basil Rathbone and Michael Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine... Invite you to listen to Dr. Watson tell us another exciting story about his old friend, that master detective, Sherlock Holmes. And we'd also like to tell you something you really ought to know. The fact that the one sure way to make good food taste better is to try that good food together with a glass of good Petri wine. Did you ever try Petri wine with dinner? No kidding, that's one bandwagon you sure want to hop on. Take, for instance, a deep red, hearty Petri California Burgundy. Where do you taste that Petri Burgundy with, let's say, a delicious old-fashioned beef stew? Or maybe try a glass with spaghetti. I'm telling you, when you add the luscious flavor of that Petri Burgundy to the flavor of your favorite foods, you're really living. You're finding out for the first time what good eating really means, on the level. So better keep a bottle of that Petri Burgundy right on the dining room table. And never forget, the best friend a good meal ever had is a glass of Petri wine. And now for our weekly visit with the good Dr. Watson. May I come in, Doctor? No, 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 Mr. Bartell. You know me better than that. Of course you can come in. I'm expecting you. I always look forward to these Monday evenings together, you know. <laughs> me too, Doctor. In fact, I always say this is the one doctor's appointment that never scares me. Oh, that's very nice of you, my boy. Draw up your chair and make yourself comfortable. Thanks. And uh, what prescription do you have in mind for us tonight, Doctor? Well, now, let me see. Take one measure of subterranean peril... One of aristocratic lady in distress, a sprinkling of assorted villains, a corpse or two, and a little more than a dash of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Shake the mixture well, and you have the case of the out-of-date murder. Well, how did the adventure begin, Doctor? Exactly enough. It was in September of 1900. I remember that Holmes and I went to Eastbourne for a much-needed rest. The first couple of days we spent in soothing idleness. On the morning of the third day, Holmes... A dash of colour back in his cheek and a hint of the old sparkle in his eye suggested that he should go and call on his good friend Evan Whitnell, curator of a nearby museum. And so, just after lunch on that September day, found the two of us talking to Professor Evan Whitnell in his private office at the museum. It only seems yesterday. Dr. Whitnell, your recent discoveries in this part of England have made you world famous instead of just nationally famous. My congratulations. Uh, Professor, I do wish you'd tell me uh, about your discoveries. Well, with pleasure, Dr. Watson. Uh, uh, less than two months ago, I was excavating on the downlands in this neighborhood when I was fortunate enough to discover a number of underground caves. 
cave saturated with a heavy deposit of lime uh, that gave clear evidence of having the property of rapidly mummifying any flesh, human or animal, uh, deposited in them. Gracious interesting. And what treasures have you unearthed, Professor? Well, a number of mummified specimens of animals clearly belonging to bygone eras. My prized specimen is the body of a large wolfhound. Uh, the inscription on its collar identified the animal as be having belonged to some local squire in the year 1748. Amazing. I didn't know that limestone had such qualities of preservation. Uh, come in, come in. Uh, yes, Alan? What is it? Lady Clavering, Professor. She asked me to tell you that she was in the museum. Oh, yes, 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 sir. Uh, show her up here, will you, Alan? Very good, sir. I'm most anxious for you both to meet her. And she, in turn, is even more anxious to meet you. Now, I dined with her last night. And when I told her that you were coming today, she insisted on meeting you. Oh, wait, no, you scoundrel. There's a twinkle in your eye. I suspect that Lady Clavering has yet to consult me in my professional capacity and that you engineered the meeting. Well, uh, perhaps I might have dropped a hint. No, no, I warn you, Professor Holmes can't become involved with another case. He's completely run down. Well, don't worry, Doctor. All that Lady Travering requires is a little advice. Advice? Oh, well, that's a different matter altogether. Yes, I I knew you wouldn't mind, Holmes. Ah, oh, Helena, my dear, there you are. Uh, come along in. Uh, thank you, uh, Alan. Allow me to introduce Lady Clavering, uh, Mr. Sherlock Holmes and uh, Dr. Watson. How do you do, Lady gentlemen. Now, uh, there you are, my dear. Uh, sit down here. I may as well tell you, Helena, that our little plot has already been discovered. Oh, dear. And I was just getting ready to exert all my feminine wiles in an attempt to persuade you to help me, Mr. Holmes. Oh, I'm certain that he found you utterly irresistible, my dear Lady Clavering. You flatter me, Doctor. <laughs> no, no, I, I mean it. The professor tells me that you're in need of a little advice, Lady Clavering. Yes, Mr. Holmes. I'll start question simply. Five years ago, my husband, Sir George Clavering, left me. Left you? This is me. How stupid of him. I haven't seen or heard tell of him since. I now wish to remarry. But, of course, I couldn't do that without having my husband declared legally dead. My dear Lady Clavering, I can't help feeling that a lawyer is the proper man to consult, not a detective. Uh, but you're suggesting that there was foul play in connection with your husband's disappearance. Oh, no, Dr. Watson. The Claverings are a strange family, self-willed and headstrong. George and I were not happy together... I think he disappeared deliberately. You reported his disappearance to the police, of course. Oh, yes, Mr. Holmes. But they've never been able to trace him. Uh, this kind of thing has happened in the family before, Holmes. Uh, tell them about Sir Nigel, Helena. Well, he was one of my husband's ancestors. He walked off one day in 1777 and was never seen again. Extraordinary family. Always disappearing. Dog knew of the legend. He often threatened to do the same thing himself. But your problem, Lady Clavering, is not that of your husband's fate, but rather of your own freedom. Yes, Mr. Holmes. Well, I'm afraid my advice can be of little consolation to you. The law has specified a number of years that must elapse before anyone disappearing can be declared legally dead. I would suggest that you possess your soul in patience until that period has elapsed. Oh, dear. And I was hoping you'd be able to think of some terribly clever way of getting round the law, Mr. Holmes. Uh, Lady Clavering, uh, sometimes perhaps my methods may be unorthodox, but I assure you that getting around the law, as you put it, is a procedure I do not indulge in. Oh, dear me, I've offended you, Mr. Holmes. And it's the last thing on earth I meant to do, I assure my you. My friend's a little touchy about matters concerning his professional honor, you know, Lady Clavering. Oh, oh, nonsense, my dear Watson. I'm not touchy and I'm not offended. And now, may I suggest we all examine the professor's biggest treasures? And after that, perhaps, he'll take us for a stroll on the downs. I'm most anxious to examine those lime pits of his.
the uh, lime pits are about a mile from here. It's a nice walk across the cliff tops. Well, I'm sorry Lady Clavering didn't want to come with us. It's a charming woman, even though she did rub you up the wrong way. A beautiful woman, Watson, but I must confess her charm eludes me. Her lack of concern about her husband's fate seemed completely unnatural. Yeah, not if you'd known her husband, Sir George Clavering. He was a tyrant and a bully, both in his home life and in the village. Hello? Who's this coming towards us? It's uh, Timmy. Jack Timmy, they call him in these parts. He isn't quite right in the head, poor fellow, but he's perfectly harmless. Has uh, two passions in life, birds and bonfires. Hello, Timmy. I've got something beautiful to show you. Oh, it's so beautiful. Well, what is it, Timmy? Look, it's in the cap. See? Oh, isn't it lovely? Robin's egg. I found it when I was bird nesting. Did you ever see such a blue egg? It's a beauty, Timmy. Where did you find it, my boy? Down by the lime pits. Oh, I'm going to build a lovely fire on the downs tonight. I'll let you come and watch it if you give me a shilling. Now, you be careful, Timmy, or you'll be in trouble again. Timmy doesn't get in trouble anymore now. Not since he had Sir George carried away. Sir George Clavering used to whip Timmy when he found him on the land. Uh, Timmy, tell me, how did you have uh, Sir George, uh, as you put it, uh, carried away? I told my birds about him. I told them how he used to to beat poor Timmy. And they said they'd carry him off and drop him over the cliffs. <laughs> and, and, and that's what they did. Because he never came back again. Oh, Lord, here comes Harry, said his brother. Now there'll be trouble. Timmy, you'd better run. Oh, oh, no. No, Timmy can't run. He'll break his pretty blue egg. Timmy! Timmy! Get off my land! If I catch you here again, I'll take my riding buff for you. Timmy hasn't done anything. Go on, be off with you, do you hear? I'll tell my birds about you. That's what I'll do. Oh, don't forget my bonfire. Infernal scoundrel. Hello, Whitnell. Oh. Hello, Harry. Uh, have you met uh, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson? Oh, Sherlock Holmes, the professional nosy Parker, eh? Yes, yes, Helena was just telling me about you. I'm very angry with her for talking to you about my brother. Private affair, and I intend it should remain one. You understand, Holmes? Oh, for myself. The devil with your brother, sir. And with you. I'd advise you to remember that you're not addressing a half-witted villager who can't defend himself. If you know what's good for you, you'll do what I say. Impertinent brute. He spoke to you as if you were a stable boy, Holmes. Oh, really? He was quite refreshing. I'm reminded of an apposite quotation of my young friend James Elroy Flecker. Thine impudence have a monstrous beauty, like unto the hindquarters of an elephant. Yeah. He's almost as much disliked as his brother before him. Uh, tell me, does he succeed to the title when his brother is declared legally dead? Oh, yes. And uh, what's more, he's Helena's unofficial fiancé, worse luck. I see. Uh, personally, I'm beginning to get a trifle bored with the affairs of the Clavering family. Let's go on to the line case, shall we? Be 50 feet below the level of the ground, aren't we, Whitnell? Well, more than that, I should say. Rock formation is most unusual. A series of caves connected by a veritable honeycomb of tunneling. Yes, yes, yes. I, I think I'll light the lantern now. It's too dark in here, and I haven't explored this particular cave before. Yes, I've uh, had a wall cave in on me a couple of times, so you'd better watch where you're walking. Uh, there. Now we can see better. 
Let's go deeper, shall we? Uh, but do watch your step. Hmm. Here down here. Hello. Well, what's this in the cutters here? Looks like a mummified bird of some kind. It is. A beautiful specimen, judging by its markings. A black streak here and bars of white in the front. I said it was a peregrine. That's exactly what it is, a falcon. Dating back a couple of hundred years, I should say. And in a perfect state of preservation. Oh, this is a treasure, but... Uh, come on, uh, let's explore deeper. There's another cave over here. If you hold the lantern up a little, I'll... Uh... Oh, I see. Lord, the whole wall collapsed. Watson, you're not hurt, are you? No, 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 Holmes, I'm all right. Why, you've unearthed another cave, Dr. Watson. Uh, uh, let's go in. I think we can just manage to crawl through. Great God, I don't believe my eyes. Quick, no. This is a treasure indeed. A perfectly preserved body dressed in 18th century costume, powdered with him all. Yes, and there's no mistaking who it is. Look at that typical beef profile. It's a clattering, and it isn't hard to identify which one. Well, you mean the one that Lady Helena told us about this afternoon? Exactly. Without doubt, this is the body of Sir Nigel Clavering, who disappeared in 1777. Uh, let's search his pockets. We might find some identification. Yeah. Uh, uh, here's a snuff box of the period, and some coins. Yes, the inscription of George Third is still visible on them. Hello, here's, here's his diary. This is unbelievable. What are you up to, Holmes? We're examining the body, Watson. This man was murdered. Murdered? This wound just above the heart. Obviously inflicted with a sharp instrument, probably a dagger. This is interesting. An entirely new experience for me. The opportunity of solving an unsuspected murder committed well over a hundred years ago. Come through that diary, Watson, will you watch? Let's see if the devil suspected his fate. Oh, hard to read. All the S's look like F. Peculiarity of the 18th century writing. They are paying, oh, I suppose I mean saying, they are paying in the coffee houses that my brother Harry hath been coveting my wife. But this is amazing, Holmes. See how history repeats itself. It's an exact parallel of the situation existing today. Harry is coveting his brother's wife, Helena, and Sir George has not been seen for five years. What an extraordinary coincidence. If it were one, as it is, it's one of the most ingenious frauds I've ever seen. The clothing appears authentic, so do the coins and the faded ink, the paper of the diary, and due to the peculiar mummification of the body, it would be almost impossible to say how long it's been here. Nevertheless, I'm convinced that this is a recent corpse, and undoubtedly that of Sir George Clavering. Well, what makes you so sure, huh? Writing the diary. 18th century used an S. It looked like an F, it is true, but never at the end of a word. You will recall, Watson, that you were reading H-A-F, half, for H-A-S, half. That's perfectly true, I was. Well, that would be incorrect and genuine 18th century writing. So, obviously, this is an extremely clever attempt to disguise the comparatively recent murder of Sir George Clavering. That's an incredible pose. Yeah, I believe you're right. I'm sure of it. Well, what are you going to do about it? Do? You and I, old chap, will mount guard over the body. You, my dear Whitnall, if you don't mind, will be good enough to go and fetch the police. Holmes. Yes, old chap? What do you suppose is keeping the police? Whitnall must have gone over an hour. And the lantern with him. 
Here we are, crouching in the dark in a smelly cave, fifty feet under the cliffs, with a mummified corpse. Who was but I don't. Uh huh. Here comes the lantern. It must be Whitlow and the police. Whitlow. That you, Whitlow? That lantern's blinding me. Is that you, Whitlow? Answer, can't you? Come on, Watson. Watson's story will continue in just a second. And I'm going to take that second to ask you what you think of when I say good food. When you say good food to me, I can see myself really going down on a piece of fried chicken, but, but really fried, you know, crisp and sort of a light brown. And when I see that chicken, I sure want to see some Petri California Sauterne. Because, believe me, Petri Sauterne is a white wine that's the wine for chicken. That Petri Sauterne has a delicate kind of flavor. Delicate like its pale gold color. But what a flavor. And what a wine. If you want a swell white wine, you certainly want Petri Sauterne. Try it and see. And now, back to Dr. Watson and tonight's story, The Case of the Out-of-Date Murder. Well, Doctor, you certainly had me on the edge of my chair during the first part of the story. Oh, I'm glad of that, my boy. Say, what happened when Sherlock Holmes yelled out at you in the cave? I was struck from behind with a spade and knocked out. A second later, the same thing happened to Holmes. You see, we were blinded by the lantern and couldn't protect ourselves. When we came to, we found we were at the bottom of a pit. The walls were narrow and vertical, and I saw no earthly way of our getting out of the trap. But as usual, Holmes... Oh, my. My head's throbbing. Never mind that for the moment, old chap. Get the coat off in your shirt. Oh, come on, come on, off with it, old huh? Come on, off with it. I, I've already removed mine and tied them together. Oh, what for? Oh, dear me, that blow on your head must have been unusually severe. I'm trying to make a kind of rope, Watson, a rope to get us out of here. Oh, what's the good rope unless there's someone on the ledge above us to haul us out? But you think you're performing the Indian rope trick. My dear Watson, this is no time for your rather heavy-handed humor. Well, why do you keep whistling like that? You've been doing it for the past 20 minutes. I'm whistling for help. Well, why not shout? Whistle carries further. No, yeah. Who's going to hear that? That, Timmy, I hope. Remember, he was having a bonfire on the tip-top tonight. My whistle is that of a nightingale, a song unheard in Sussex this time of the year. If it does answer it, I'm sure it'll bring him down here. Oh, well, I hope you're right. Seems to me that Whitlow and the police will never find us here. We shall mummify, just as a filthy murderer intended us to. Courage, Watson, I'm sure. It's worked! It's Timmy! Cutting a burning log! Get out of here, Timmy! Nightingale? Pretty birdie! What are you doing down there? Timmy! I've tied these clothes together to make a rope. I'm going to throw them up. You ready? Catch! Good. He's caught it. Now, Timmy! Lower it to us. Oh, I shouldn't do this. Uh, they'll whip me. Oh, no, no, nobody will whip you, Timmy. And we both want to give you a shilling to come up and see your bonfire. Oh, oh, that's different. Two shiny shillings. I'll lower the rope. Here it comes. Ah, 
Ask him. All right, look, another. You first. All right, Timmy, pull away. Right, here you go. Splendid. I'm up, Holmes. Now, Lewis, for you. All right. I've got it. Look out now. Here I come. Ah. Oh, thank goodness we got out of that place all right. I don't see the nightingale. Oh, you must have him inside your coat. Well, well, never mind. We'll all go up to my bonfire and get warm. It's such a pretty bonfire. Did you ever see a finer bonfire? Never, Timmy. It's lovely. It's the most comforting sight I've seen for the last couple of hours. Oh, just one thing's bad, though. Somebody tried to burn a book in my lovely fire. It must have been when I was off getting more wood. I, I found it when I came back, and I pulled it out of the fire and stamped on it. See? Here it is. Let's have a look. Hello, it's the diary that we found on the body in the lime pit. Precisely, Watson. Now I begin to see daylight. People shouldn't burn books. Books are nice. Books are like birds and, and bonfires. But they're nice to be near. Oh, your nightingale must be cold. I'll get some more twigs, Earn. Well, now that fellow's gone away for a moment, I can see why we were attacked tonight. The murderer knew that we were going to, to the caves. He was afraid that his devilish plot wouldn't stand up under your scrutiny. So he, he watched us. When we discovered the body and sent Whitner off for the police, he knew that he'd got to get rid of us. And who do you think that somebody is, old fellow? Well, that's easy. Only one person strong enough to have knocked us both out and shifted our bodies. The dead Sir George's brother, Harry Clavering. I think not, old fellow. Didn't you observe as we entered the caves that pickaxes and wheelbarrows were much in evidence? Yes, that's, uh, that's right. They, they were, of course. Strength was not required under the circumstances. We were extremely vulnerable in the darkness. Any man with a modicum of cunning could have disposed of us, or any woman, for the matter. Good Lord, you're, you're not oh, suggesting that... Uh... Watson! Oh, what no! Why, thank heaven you're safe! I've had the police with me for the last hour, but we couldn't find you. You went where I left you. True. Uh, Whitnell, I want you and the police to take me to Lady Clavering's house at once. After that, I wish to lodge information and make a charge of assault and possibly a charge of murder. that, Lady Clavering, is the story of how we found your husband's body. Oh, horrible, Mr. Holmes. Horrible. But who in thunder could have planned such a devilish plot? Yeah. Why did the murderer attack you and Watson? There, my dear Whitmore, you have the key to the murderer's identity. The man who so cunningly conceived and executed the murder of Sir George could never have bungled the job of disposing of Watson and myself unless he had meant to bungle it. You mean he didn't mean to kill us? Exactly. He merely wished us out of the way while the incriminating evidence was removed. You mean the diary? Of course I do. You will recall we found it partially burnt in Timmy's bonfire. That was Timmy who... No, 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 my dear fellow. Surely it's obvious. One person and only one. Knew that the diary was the key to the murderer's identity. The man who was present when we discovered it and detected the fraud. Great Scott, Professor Whitnell. Whitnell, you murdered my brother. Evan. Evan, you? Oh, no. I did it because I love you, Helena. All these years has been nothing in my life that meant anything but you. How could you? I thought that if George were out of the way, I could make you care for me. And when I realized that you loved Harry, I, 
I was mad with jealousy. And so I planned to conceal George's body forever. It was a clever plan. You said to yourself, Holmes, if it hadn't been for you, it would have worked. Yes, it was diabolically clever, Whitmore, but I'm afraid that no amount of cleverness now can prevent you from paying for your crime. Sir George, I suggest that you instruct the police to come in. Our work is done. Look there on the point. Timmy's bonfire is still burning away. Yes. Timmy's a simple fellow with simple tastes. Well, why are you so gloomy? You solved the case brilliantly. My dear fellow, my, my faith in human nature has been sadly shaken off. But Evan Whitmore was a good friend and old one. Hard to be instrumental in sending him to the gallows. Well, he richly deserved yes, it. Yes, yes, I know he did. That's quite true. But it's depressing just the same. Come on. Let's continue our walk home across the downs. That's Harry offering you a fee. Did you take it? No, I didn't, but I did accept his offer of an acre of land on the downs over there near the Abbey Ruins. You can see them silhouetted against the sky. An acre of land? What on earth would you do with that? Well, when I retire, and I shall retire soon, I've often thought of bee farming. This would be a heavenly spot for such a venture. Well, I can't imagine you as a beekeeper. Oh, why not? After a life spent unraveling the tangled affairs of human beings... It would be soothing in the twilight of one's days to study the exact and predictable behavior of bees. Singing masons, building roofs of gold. Oh, well. One day, perhaps. Perhaps. One day. Well, Doctor, that was a swell story. You know... I'm sure glad we get together like this once a week. Oh, thank you very much. Next week, why not come over a little earlier for dinner? Oh, no, I, I wouldn't think of having you go through all that trouble. Oh, well, of course, if you feel that way. Well, say, aren't you going to coax me? <laughs> <laughs> to tell you the truth, I, I knew I wouldn't have to coax you. Mr. Bartow, I was just going to show you the two thick steaks that I've got frozen in my refrigerator. Oh, no. Oh, yes. I'll also put aside a bottle of... Petri Burgundy. Well, in which case, I'll bring along a very hearty appetite. If you pick the steak, I know it's good, and when it's Petri wine, you know that's got to be good, too. Because the Petri family has been making fine wine for generations. They've owned and operated the Petri business ever since its inception, way back in the 1800s. During all that time, they've sure learned plenty about the fine art of turning luscious grapes into clear, fragrant, delicious wine. And they've been able to take this experience and hand it on down from father to son, from father to son. That's why, when you want wine for any occasion, you can't go wrong with a Petri wine. Because Petri took time to bring you good wine. Now, Dr. Watson, what story do you have lined up for us next week? Well, now, let me see. Next week, Mr. Bartell, I'm going to tell you an adventure that occurred to Holmes and me in the shadowy depths of the Limehouse district in London. It's a strange tale of death and terror. I call the story The Eyes of Mr. Layton. Well, Doctor, we'll be sure not to miss it. And meanwhile, don't you forget you promised to contribute to the National War Fund. National War Fund? Of course, Mr. Bartell. It's a must. The money you give to your war fund not only helps the men and women in our armed forces, and it not only helps our allies, but that money goes to work right in your own community, helping make possible many relief and welfare agencies in your own hometown. So let's all be generous in victory. Give to your community war fund. 
Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure is written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and is based on an incident in the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Adventure of Wisteria Lodge. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. The Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. Oh, the Petri family took the time to bring you such good wine. So when you eat and when you cook, remember Petri wine. To make good food taste better, remember... Pet, pet. This is Harry Bartell saying goodnight for the Petri family. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studios. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Well, of course, uh, even though there was always an outro given by Dr. Watson about what the next story was going to be, that is not going to be our next story. Uh, also, do not feel any need to go and seek out Petri wine. Uh, who knows? It might be it might be drained from a radiator, for all we know. We don't have, we don't have a clue. I think I actually tried to find some and never could locate. Is it I, I, Petri wine may no longer exist. I don't I know. Do, I don't think the winery itself exists anymore, but I was, like, just interested if I could find, a, like, an old bottle you know but yes perhaps perhaps preserved in a limestone cave (laughs) i do i I do find this to be a a pretty good little story and i think that uh as we discussed before i think maybe the reason why this is an original story that is quote-unquote suggested by the adventure with serial lodge is because uh i think that the format that this radio show has, which is, you know, it's it's a 30-minute 30, 30 time slot, which means you really only have about 20 to 25 minutes to tell a story. I think that even even most of the, the original short stories, you would have really had to compress the story down a lot to get it to fit into that short a time period for the air. I mean, I think it could be done, but not with all of the requirements that these shows seem to have had at the time which is, you know, trying to find a way to organically fit in ads and to fold uh, fold uh, uh, another host character, not just the Watson character, but fold a ho- host character into the story as if he's coming to Watson's uh, retirement home to hear hear the story be told. Yeah, and this host, he really loves his Petri wine. He's very <laughs> serious I, yeah. about his wine. But there is, somewhere there is an ad in there, and... I've, I've, I've listened to this one many times, but I cringe every time he says, going down on some chicken. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yes. The When he says that, I was like, oh, my God, man, decades later, that phrase has a really different connotation. I mean, it's like, oh, my gosh, that is so. Yeah, yeah, that is. That is not how you want to describe eating a chicken, unless what you're describing is not eating a chicken. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I forgot. Yeah, that's true. That's that's so true. Yeah. Well, uh, I will also say there comes a time if you listen to enough of these in a row, you think this is this guy just setting up an IV of Petri wine and just <laughs> what is the deal? Is this like the only half hour out of the day where he can really let fly how much he loves wine? I mean, it's just. I think he's getting paid. <laughs> oh well, yeah, I, I'm assuming so. But he seems insanely enthusiastic about this he wine. Is very and, and he loves war bonds too. He does. He, he, he does, gets excited. He gets about drunk it. and buys war bonds. <laughs> Thank God the internet didn't exist in the forties. This man would be broke. <laughs> Nevertheless, we're going to move on now to our our second Sherlock Holmes radio feature, which 
comes in the uh, 1970s, actually. Uh, this is from the uh, the series that started in uh, 1975, and it lasted through uh, 1982. It was kind of a uh, an attempt to bring back the classic radio, uh, you know, classic radio dramas of the time. It was the CBS Mystery Theater, and it's actually the, this is the show that introduced me to the idea of kind of the theater of the mind, the uh, the old time radio stuff, and it's why I still love it to this day because I could pick this, uh, I could pick up this a uh, Chicago radio station at night on Saturday nights with my little clock radio when I was supposed to be drifting off to sleep. I could pick up this Chicago station once the sun went down that actually played the CBS Mystery Theater. And, of course, it being primarily a suspense and horror show, it was right up my alley. So uh, this is a show that I really enjoyed for a number of years, whenever I could catch it on a Saturday evening. And uh, this, is, uh, a good ex- this is a good example of the fact that there are so many episodes of it that either I, I know I never heard them all, and even in my attempts to seek it out on the Internet, there's still some I haven't seen. Or, I'm sorry, still haven't heard. Because this is one that I did not know even existed. This is an adaptation, a straight adaptation, of a Sherlock Holmes story. The uh, was the adventure of the Barrel Coronet. Right, um, and I, although the the Petri wine guy really tickles me, and I do like the earlier earlier stuff. Uh, when you get to the uh, CBS uh, Mystery Theater stuff. You get E.G. Marshall, and the stuff that he adds... Of course, the shows are longer. Yeah, yeah. Well, they get about 40 to 42 minutes to be right. able to actually tell the story, yeah. Right. And so you could just skip through what he does and adds oh, to the show, I but yeah. I don't think you would want to, because he he isn't just selling stuff. He uh, he talks about the story. He, is, he gives a good intro and talks about 1892 and all the things that, that yeah, happened yeah. in... 1892, as well as, you know, Sherlock Holmes becoming resident at, uh, you know, 221 B. Baker Street and becoming, you know, the first consulting Consulting detective. detective, And so he he actually adds a lot to it. Well, anytime you get E.G. Marshall involved, it's it's it was always a good thing. He just he's got such a great voice and he just sounds authoritative and and, and he's, he's he's wonderful in this show. This is, I think, this may have been the first. Like I say, listening to the, these radio shows, these CBS Mystery Theaters was probably the first encounter I had with E.G. Marshall, and he's just he's amazing. I just love his voice and I love what he does in these shows. And he even at the end gives a really really um, obscure kind of Sherlockian piece of uh trivia about the railroad stations and oh yeah yeah yeah, that's true and uh so people who are real aficionados they probably know this already but it's for people who are you know who haven't like memorized everything it it, (laughs) um it's nice to get these little bits of trivia yeah Yeah. exactly yeah so that are interesting and, and and you'll you'll enjoy it yeah, this is this is a really good adaptation. It's uh, it's a it's a it's a good story on its own. There have been a lot of audio adaptations of this particular story out there, as I'm as I'm sure there have been of all of them. But I actually listened to uh, two different ones just to kind of compare and contrast, and I really do prefer this one. This is a really good version of this story. I think the voice actors in this one are really, really good, and it's got a good it's got a good pace. So yes. Okay. And we should point out that uh, the person playing Sherlock Holmes in this is uh, Kevin McCarthy, who is an actor that you should be fairly familiar with uh, if you if you need a, a face to go with the name. If you've ever seen the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, he's the lead actor. He's the hero of the story. 
which means, of course, if you, as soon as you picture his face, you've probably seen him in about a hundred other movies as well. Uh, but he is an—he's an interesting choice to play Sherlock Holmes because, of course, he's an American actor. And you will notice in this that he is not going out of his way to affect a British accent. He's just doing his job very well, and you don't even notice that he doesn't sound particularly British because he's delivering his lines in a very Sherlockian way. He's very good at the... He's he's Kevin McCarthy. He's a, He was a great actor to begin with, and all-around funny guy. Believe me, there. if you ever got the chance to meet him, you, you were going to end up with a funny story to tell. And he's really good at this. I was unaware, strangely enough, I was completely unaware that he had done radio like this. But then I looked into uh, various guest actors who'd been on the CBS Mystery Theater, and man, there's a long list of really amazing names. We're talking uh, Agnes Moorhead, John Lithgow, Roy Finnis, Jerry Stiller, uh, Kathleen Quinlan, Mandy Patankin, Sarah Jessica Parker, Jerry Orbach, uh, Casey Kasem, who of course did lots of voice work. I mean, come on, it's Scooby <laughs> the Scooby-Doo show should have told you that. Margaret Hamilton, Joan Hackett, Richard Crenna. So I was unaware, especially when I was a kid, first listening to the, to this show on the radio, that real movie actors were coming and doing this show. And I don't know if that just speaks well to the, the quality of the scripts, but I would like to think it does because, like I said, I've never been disappointed with the CBS Mystery Theater. So here is The Adventure of the Barrel Coronet. The CBS Radio Mystery Theater presents... Marshall. The year 1892 provided some history-making events, such as the completion of the Cape Johannesburg Railroad, the introduction of the first automatic telephone switchboard, the granting of patent rights for the internal combustion engine. Gladstone was chosen prime minister, and last but not least, a genius by the name of Sherlock Holmes took up residence at 221B Baker Street, offering his services as a consulting detective. And very shortly thereafter, he was called upon to solve the mysterious affair of the barrel coronet. Arthur, what are you doing in my room at this time of night? And why have you taken the coronet from the bureau? Father, I... I've... You've dropped it! You've destroyed it, you thief! What did you do with the jewels you stole? Father, if you believe me a thief, I'll leave your house in the morning. If you leave, you'll leave in the hands of the police. The fact that I'm your father will not stop me from prosecuting you to the limit of the law for this vicious crime. Our mystery drama... The Adventure of the Barrel Coronet was adapted from the Conan Doyle classic especially for the Mystery Theater by Murray Burnett and stars Kevin McCarthy. It is sponsored in part by Buick Motor Division and Contact, the 12-hour cold capsule. I'll be back shortly with Act One. is born. 
is a theatrical statement of unarguable clarity. However, the truth of the statement doesn't apply only in the theater, but in the fashion, the arts, and literature. And so it was with Sherlock Holmes, who gained instant immortality as the world's foremost detective when he was first created by A. Conan Doyle more than 100 years ago. And now, we pick up Holmes and his famous friend, Dr. Watson, cozy by the fireplace in their Baker Street flat on a winter morning. I was standing at our bow window overlooking Baker Street one February morning when I observed a most unusual sight. A well-dressed man in his 50s running down the street oblivious of the stairs of passers-by with his hands jerking up and down and his head waggling on his body. And I called to my friend, Holmes, uh, look at this madman. Doesn't it appear rather sad that his relatives allow him to come out alone? I think, Watson, I recognize the symptoms. They portray not madness, but a desire to consult me professionally. Mm. Ah, did I not tell you? The door, Watson, before he pulls the bell out of its socket. No doubt you think me mad. Oh, I see that you've had some great trouble. Heaven knows I have. A devilish combination of public disgrace and private affliction. Besides, it's not my trouble alone. The very noblest in the land may suffer unless a way is found out of this frightful affair. Pray you compose yourself, sir, and try to give me a clear account of who you are and this trouble that has befallen you. I'm probably known to you by name. I'm Alexander Holder, senior partner in the banking firm of Holder and Stevenson on Threadneedles. We have indeed heard of you, sir, and your firm. Oh, then you will understand what it means to me to have my son arrested and jailed for theft. Hmm. Who brought these charges against him? I did, Mr. Holmes. My son left me no choice. There's no doubt about his guilt. None at all. Well, then, what brings you to me? Desperation. I confess it. Complete desperation. Inspector Lestrade of Scotland Yard gave me your name. Ah. Although neither of us have much hope there's anything you can do. If that's true, I think you should hear it from me. But I can make no judgment until I have all the facts before me. It would help if you would start from the beginning. Uh, Yes, of course, of course. Well, as you must know, one of our largest sources of income comes from confidential, very discreet loans to some of England's noblest families Mm -hmm. who leave with us unimpeachable security. Your reputation in that field is well known. Yes, yes, yes. Well, yesterday morning, I advanced the sum of 50,000 pounds to... Well, the name really should remain confidential. As you wish, as you wish. And the security for this large sum? You have heard of the barrel coronet? Mm. One of the most precious public possessions of the empire. And I respect your desire for discretion with the name of the owner, which is well known to the world. Uh, I suppose it was inevitable you'd know the owner's name. I am surprised that this august gentleman would allow the coronet out of his possession. I brought that point up 
But he assured me that he needed the money for only four days. And he was certain the coronet would be safe in my hands for that short length of time. And from what I gather, you took it home with you. Wasn't that an unusual procedure? Well, decidedly. But the coronet was so precious, I, I felt it would be imprudent to leave it behind me. Mm-hmm. Bankers' safes have been forced before. And if it should happen to me, <laughs> what a disaster. And therefore, I resolved that for the next few days I would carry the case containing the coronet back and forth with me, never leaving it out of my possession. And your son, of course, knew about the coronet. Alas, yes. Arthur's a good boy, Mr. Holmes. Uh, I must seem like an old fool telling you that while he's sitting in jail. You you see, Mr. Holmes, I've spoiled Arthur. But I don't deny it. I've granted his every wish, including allowing him to become a member of an aristocratic club where he fell in with men with long purses and expensive habits. Uh He gambled and lost and came to me again and again, imploring me for advances on his allowance to settle his debts. I take it, then, that he's more or less a gentleman of leisure. I wanted him very much to to succeed me in my business. But to tell the truth, I was afraid to trust him with the handling of large sums of money. In fact, it was the conversation I had with him yesterday evening in my study that is the most damning piece of evidence. I'll try to lay it before you just as it happened. I don't suppose you're going to look upon what I had to say very kindly, but I've left myself no choice. Is it money again, Arthur? I'm afraid so. Can you let me have 200 pounds? No! I cannot! I'm sorry. That's not true. I I will not. I've been much too generous with you in money matters. I won't deny you've been very kind to me, Father, but... But this is truly an emergency. I must have the money or I can never show my face inside the club again. Well, a very good thing if you don't... You... You mean you'd have me leave the club a dishonored man? Well, that's something of your own doing. I couldn't bear the disgrace. My patience has run out. You won't get a farthing from me. Very well. If you won't let me have it, then I must try whatever other means I can find. Those were his last words before he left the room. Damning, aren't they? Mm-hmm, they can be. I'll withhold judgment until I have more to go on. Now, you've told me your son knew the coronet was in the house. Did he also know where? Uh, I see you're trying to do your best for him, Mr. Holmes, but it's no use. Arthur not only knew it was in the house, but also the exact location. How did that come about? Uh, When I told him and my niece Mary about the coronet, they were both desperately anxious to get a close look at the famous crown. I thought it was wiser to leave it undisturbed. Well, then how? Arthur asked me where I'd put it. And when I told him it was in my bureau, he remarked that he hoped the house wouldn't be burgled during the night. I responded that my bureau was locked, and he told me that any old key would fit my bureau. In fact, he went so far as to say he'd open it himself as a child with the key of a, of a box room cupboard. A most singular statement. Don't you think, sir? That's not the way I'd characterize it. It seemed to me absolute proof to his guilt. I still have reached no conclusion on that point, Mr. Holder. You have yet to hear the worst. After he left, 
I started around the house to see that all was secure. Is that your usual habit? No, no, not at all. I usually leave that to my niece, Mary. But last night, in view of the circumstances, I thought it best that I check myself. Understandable. And? You must understand that my niece had lived with us for the past 15 years, and our relationship is more than that of father and daughter and of uncle and niece. As I came down the stairs, I saw Mary closing and fastening a window in the hall. Upon seeing me, she said immediately... Dad, did you give Lucy the maid permission to go out tonight? No, certainly not. She came in just now by the rear door. I don't doubt that she only went to the side gate to see her young man. But I think it could be dangerous if she makes a habit of it. Oh, I agree wholeheartedly. One of us must speak to her in the morning. I'll do it. You have enough on your mind. <laughs> right. Well, thank you. Good night, dear. Dad, it, is it the coronet or is there something else bothering you? Oh, dear, dear. How well you know me, dear Mary. Yes, yes, there is something... I know how I wish you could have found it in your heart to marry Arthur. It's my fondest wish. I know. So I left her. Went up to my bedroom. Checked that the coronet was still where I'd placed it. And went to bed and fell asleep. I'm not a very heavy sleeper. About two in the morning, I was awakened by some sound in the house. I lay listening. Suddenly, to my horror, there was a distinct sound of footsteps moving softly in the next room. Well, I slipped fearfully out of bed and peered around the corner of my dressing room door. I'd lift the gas half up, and by its light, I saw my son... Dressed only in his shirt and trousers, standing beside the light, holding the coronet in his hands. He appeared to be wrenching at it with all his strength. I shouted at him, asking what he was doing in my room at this time of night. At my cry, he turned pale as death and dropped the coronet. Oh, Father, no wonder you shake, you braggart. Where are the jewels you've stolen from the coronet? Stolen? Yes, you thief. There are no jewels missing. There can't be any missing. There are three missing. And you know where they are. Must I call you a liar as well as a thief? You've called me names enough. I shall leave your house in the morning. If you don't tell me what you've done with the jewels, you'll leave in the hands of the police. If you choose to call the police, then let them find what they can. Father... I won't raise a finger to help you. Today there's a good deal of talk about the breakdown of communications between parents and children. It certainly seems that there's a lack of communication between Arthur Holder and his father, and with good reason. What is the good reason? We'll find out in Act Two when I return shortly. Every father wants his son to grow up to be somebody. 
No matter that child experts claim this wish is, in reality, an expression of the father's own frustrations, one of the last things in the world a father would want is for his son to be a thief. So it's not difficult to imagine the staggering shock Alexander Holder underwent when he caught his only son, Arthur, in the act of stealing a priceless jeweled coronet. There's more to that miserable night than I've related, Mr. Holmes. <laughs> but I, I, I can't go on. Oh, what shall I do? In one night, I've lost my honor, my gems, and my son. What shall I do? Face the facts. Pull yourself together and continue with the story. I'm not convinced that your son is a thief. But I saw him with a coronet in his hand. I hardly consider that conclusive. Was the remainder of the coronet at all injured? Yes, it was twisted. Mm -hmm. Isn't it possible that he was trying to straighten it? Uh, heaven bless you, but I'm afraid you're undertaking too heavy a task. What was he doing there in the first place? If he were innocent, why didn't he say so? Precisely. And if he were guilty, why didn't he invent a lie? His silence appears to cut both ways. But uh, pray continue. You've told me you were shouting. Now, what about the rest of the household? Oh, the whole house was astir. Mary was the first to rush into my room. At the sight of the coronet and Arthur's face, she screamed and fainted dead away. Mm. And when did the police enter the case? An inspector and a constable were there within an hour. And here again, Arthur's behavior pointed only to his guilt. If you'll allow me to recount the scene to you. Father, I'm asking whether it's your intention to charge me with theft. This is no longer a private matter. That coronet is national property. The law must take its course. You might at least do me one favor. And that is? Don't have me arrested at once. I implore you to let me leave the house for just five minutes. Believe me, it would be to your advantage as well as mine. So that you can run away? I give you my word I shall return if you let me leave. I'm afraid your word is something that holds no value in this situation. If you don't intend to run away, perhaps you wish to leave in order to conceal the stones you've stolen? When you take that attitude, I see it's useless for me to try to help you. Help me? Why don't you help yourself? There were 39 perfectly matched barrels in that coronet. Three are missing. You can still avert a national scandal. I beg you to tell me where the missing stones are, and I promise you that all will be forgiven and been forgotten. Keep your forgiveness for those who ask for it. When I heard those words, Mr. Holmes, I realized that anything further was useless. I called the inspector and gave Arthur into custody. Mm -hmm. Did the police make any attempt to locate the missing gems? Oh, they're still sounding the planking and probing the furniture in the hope of finding them. How about outside the house? Uh, they've shown extraordinary energy. The whole garden has already been minutely examined. <laughs> Mr. Holmes, my head is spinning. What do you make of it? Well, let's first look at what you make of it, Mr. Holder. It's your opinion that your son came down from his bedroom, went at great risk to your dressing room, opened your bureau, took out the coronet, broke a small portion of it off by main force, went off to some other place, concealed three gems out of some 39, 
with such skill that nobody can find them, then returned with the other 36 into the room in which he exposed himself to the greatest danger of discovery. Now, I ask you, sir, is such a theory tenable? Uh, certainly not the way you put it. But I ask you, what other is there? If his motives were innocent, why doesn't he explain them? It's my task to find out. Holmes, myself, and a thoroughly confused but slightly more hopeful Alexander Holder set off for Fairbank, a modest residence of the great financier. Holmes left us standing at the door and walked slowly around the house. He was so long that Mr. Holder and I went into the dining room and waited by the fire for his return. Now, as we sat there, a slim, dark, pale-faced woman entered the room. You've given orders that Arthur should be freed, haven't you, Dad? No, my dearest. The matter must be probed to the very bottom. But I'm sure he's innocent. Perhaps he refuses to talk because he's angry that you should suspect him. Would any sane man have acted otherwise? I, I saw what I saw. Trust a woman's instinct, Dad. Take my word for it that he's innocent. Let the matter drop and say no more. Uh, far from letting the matter drop, I've brought a gentleman down from London to inquire more deeply into it. This gentleman? No, his friend, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. He's round in the stable lane now. The stable lane? What on earth can he hope to find there? Oh, this, I suppose, is he. I sincerely trust, sir, you will succeed in proving that my cousin Arthur is innocent of this crime. I hope I may prove it. I believe I have the honor of addressing Miss Mary Holder. May I ask you a question or two? Anything. Anything that will help clear up this horrible affair. Last night, you heard nothing yourself? Not until I was wakened by my uncle's voice and the shouting coming from his room. Mm -hmm. Your uncle has told me that you usually lock up at night. That's so. Did you fasten all the windows last night? Yes. And were they all fastened this morning? Yes. Now, you have a maid who has a sweetheart. I think that you remarked to your uncle last night that she had been out to see the sweetheart? Yes. She's also the girl who waited in the drawing room. And she may have heard Uncle's words about the coronet. Mm-hmm. I see. You infer, then, that she may have gone out to tell her sweetheart and that the two of them may have planned the robbery. Well, what's the use of all this? I saw Arthur with the coronet in his hands. These theories... Please, please, Mr. Holder, I must ask you to allow me to pursue the investigation in my own fashion. Holmes wanted to see the dressing room and the coronet, and we, we all trooped upstairs. On the way, Holmes continued to question Mary Holder. Now, about the servant girl, Miss Holder. Last night, you saw her return to the house by the kitchen door, I presume. It was when I went to see that the door was fastened for the night. I met her slipping in. Mm. I saw the man, too, in the half-light. Do you know him? Oh, yes. He's the greengrocer who delivers our vegetables. His name is Francis Proper. He stood to the left of the door, did he not? Why, yes, he did. Then he's a man with a wooden leg. Why, you're like a magician. How did you know that? Since we've reached what's obviously your dressing room, Mr. Holder, I'd like now to have a look at the coronet. Uh, if you wait just a moment till I get the case in the bureau. Uh, there it is. Now, here, here's the coronet. Thank you. 
I see this corner here corresponds to that which was so unfortunately lost. Might I ask you to break it off? You might not. I shouldn't dream of trying. Then if you'll allow me... I will. No. No, no chance. I feel it give a little. But although I have exceptional strength in my fingers, I cannot do it. Now, Mr. Holder, what do you think would happen if someone should succeed in breaking this off? I have no idea. There would be a noise like a pistol shot. And if you tell me that all this happened within a few yards of your bed and you heard nothing, then I say, I do not believe it. Well, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, has my father succeeded in convincing you of my guilt? Are you here to get my confession? Quite the contrary, young man. I know that you are innocent. All I ask is that you confirm some deductions that I've made as to what happened in the house the night that the coronet was mutilated and the jewels stolen. Why should think it's your task to find the jewels? So it is, so it is. But you can make that task easier and at the same time clear yourself and ease your father's anguish. He's brought it on himself. Mm. Is your father also to blame for your gambling debts? Of course not. I've been a fool, but I'm through with all that. Once I pay this lost debt, I'll never touch a card again. And what about the club? I'll resign. Ah. And I won't miss it. I'll be glad never to walk through those doors again. And how about the friends you've made there? Sir George Burnwell, for instance. Won't you miss his company? I rather think it will be the other way around. Indeed. From what your father told me, I thought Sir George was your mentor and your ideal. Oh, you think you're very clever. Perhaps you are, but you'll get nothing from me. No more answers, nothing. If I am tried and convicted, so be it. And that is my last word. Well, I, I can't understand why you're looking so content, considering how little progress we made with that young man. My dear Watson, if you think back on the conversation, I'm sure you'll see we made... Gigantic strides. Huh? For one thing, he told us that he's equally angry with his father and Sir George Burnwell. Well, so he did, but well, how, how that helps is beyond me. Look at the facts. Up until the incident of the coronet, Sir George Burnwell, according to his father, was Arthur's constant companion and dazzling friend. Well, and he was also in good terms with his father. Precisely. Now it stands to reason he has cause to turn against the father who accuses him of theft. But why does he also change his feelings about Sir George? <laughs> I've no idea. Uh, and I don't see how it has anything to do with the matter we're looking into. Only this, Watson. That the sudden breaking off of this friendship comes at exactly the time of the theft of the coronet. Well, couldn't it be coincidence? Mm, exactly what I'm going to find out. This note is to a friend of mine who's a member of the same club, and I'm asking for an invitation. Well, well, what do you intend to do when you get there? Why, gamble. Of course. Ah, Watson, you shouldn't have waited up for me. <laughs> might have been out all night. As a matter of fact, I should have been, but I felt that losing 150 pounds was more than enough. You lost 150 pounds? Mm -hmm. Naturally. I was cheated. Cheated? Mm -hmm. oh, by whom? Sir George Burnwell. Oh, but, but surely you unmasked the scoundrel. No, I did nothing of the sort. I paid my losses and walked away. Burnwell is a devilishly charming man. Well, I, I, I don't care how charming he may be. He's a cheat, and he should be blackballed. No doubt. Now, here. 
Look at this deck of cards. Huh? Hmm? Observe how I'm holding it. In gambling circles, this is known as the mechanic's grip. Oh, sir. And should you ever sit down in a game with a man who holds the deck in this fashion, I urge you, Watson, to get up and walk away. Huh. Uh, and Sir George held the deck this way? Most certainly. And it enabled him to deal what gamblers call seconds. Oh. Well, it's too much for me. Let me illustrate. Well. Now, observe, Watson. I turn the top card face over. Huh? What is it? Well, it's the Ace of Cups. Exactly. And now watch as I deal you four cards and deal myself four cards. Now, since the Ace of Clubs was on top, it should be the first card I dealt to you. Isn't that so? Oh, yes, yes mm-hmm. certainly. All right. Turn your cards face up and show me the Ace. What? What isn't here? Where is it, Holmes? Exactly where it was before I dealt, Watson. On the top. Yes, sir. I dealt you always the second card, just as Burnwell did when he dealt thus reserving the ace for him when he needed it. Well, it's amazing, Holmes. But I don't see how that explains the theft of the coronet. It supports the only logical deduction as to how the crime was committed and who stole the gems. You, you mean that the whole thing was, was some sleight of hand trick? I mean only that after a brief return to Fairbank, I will be able to tell Inspector Lestrade who the criminal is and where to look for the gems. and sleight of hand are practiced by many. And some of the magicians of the world have performed tricks which border on the incredible. But so far, no one had been able to duplicate the feats of detection registered by the unique Sherlock Holmes. We'll be back shortly with the solution of the affair of the barrel coronet. that the incomparable solver of mysteries, Sherlock Holmes, should himself be the source of a puzzle whose answer has eluded all the experts. The puzzle is, what accounts for his undiminished popularity? The hold that he has exerted over four generations of readers. My personal belief is that the Holmes stories satisfy a deep-seated longing for a well-ordered existence where justice always triumphs. That may be an oversimplification, but let us put that speculation aside and visit with him and Dr. Watson as they bring yet another case to a triumphant conclusion. Holmes returned early in the afternoon with that glint in his eyes which told me things had gone well. Watson, they're doing the Symphony Fantastique at Covent Garden tomorrow evening. And by that time, we'll have completed the investigation of this little affair of the Bell Coronet. Ah, you know the culprit. Oh, I knew that yesterday. But there's an interesting development. Here, read this note from Mary Holder to her uncle. Uh, well, <clears throat> uh, my dearest uncle, I feel that I've brought trouble upon you, and that if I'd acted differently, this terrible misfortune might never have occurred. I cannot, with this thought in mind... Never again be happy under your roof. And I feel I, I must leave you forever. Oh, dear. Do not worry about my future, for that is provided for. In life or in death, I am ever your loving Mary. Holmes, do you think this is a suicide note? No, 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 no. Nothing of the kind. 
It is perhaps the best possible solution. Well, what can this note possibly mean? Now bring it along with us while we visit with young Arthur Holder and everything will become perfectly clear. Before you start with any questions, I want you to know I haven't changed my mind. No questions, I promise. We bring you some news. Your cousin Mary has left the house. Oh, I don't believe you. It's a trick. Show him the note, Doctor. See, my dearest uncle, I feel must leave you. Oh, the fool. The poor little fool. You cannot blame her too much. You were also taken in by the rogue, were you not? I don't know what you're talking about. I'm talking about Sir George Burnwell. I believe she's with him now. You're wrong. You must be wrong. Mary couldn't... Why not? She'd led an extremely sheltered existence. And you have personal knowledge of what a charming, plausible villain the man is. When Sir George undoubtedly told her of his undying love, she believed him and became his, his willing tool. It's a lie. Mm-hmm. You, above all, should know it's true. How else do you explain her action on the night your father accused you of taking the coronet? You don't know anything about that on night. On the contrary, I know everything. And I shall prove it to you. You went to bed, but you slept badly after the argument with your father. Well, what has that got to do with Mary? Because you had difficulty sleeping, you were curious when you heard a soft step pass your door. You looked out and were astonished to see your cousin walking stealthily along the passage leading to your father's room. Mary doesn't have it. She didn't... Didn't what? Keep it, you mean? Uh, I don't want to listen to any more. I am going to plead guilty and get it over with. Well, that won't help anyone, since I shall have your father engage a solicitor and pass on all the information I've gathered, and the whole world will then know about it. If you know so much, you don't need me. I would not be here if I didn't. Oh, very well. I'll, I'll listen to what else you have to say and then make my decision. Although I understand the depth of your feeling for your cousin, you shouldn't be blind to the fact that she acted ignobly. Mr. Holmes... If all you're going to do is criticize Mary... I am referring to her attempt to cast suspicion in your uncle's mind upon the maidservant. But it's perfectly true that Lucy saw her young man that night. I'm aware of that. But I also know that the maid had nothing to do with the coronet, as you yourself know. Because you saw Mary disappear into your father's dressing room. You were so amazed by her actions that you slipped on a shirt and trousers and waited. When she came out of the room, you saw, to your horror that she carried the barrel coronet in her hands. You also saw her pass it through an open window to some person standing outside the house. Poor Mary. You make it sound almost as if you were there. For a moment, you were undecided. You wouldn't risk exposing Mary for anything in the world. But the instant she went back to her room, you ran out of the house and overtook Sir George Burnwell. I didn't know it was he until I caught up with him. And then you struggled with him. Each of you had a hold of the coronet, and then something suddenly snapped. You, finding the coronet in your hands, rushed back, closed the window, went to your father's room, and observing that the coronet was twisted, was trying to straighten it out when your father discovered you. Yes. Yes, you you could see why I couldn't tell him. I see what difficulties love can lead a man into. But it was obvious that the reason for your cousin's thinking was that she saw you with the coronet and realized that you had the power to reveal her as the thief. Oh, she should have known I'd never do that. But how in the world did you know what happened outside the house? Simplicity itself. When I first arrived at Fairbank, I looked around the house for traces in the snow. 
When I reached the stable lane, there was a very long and complex story written there for all to see. I don't understand. There was a double line of tracks of a booted man and a second double line belonging to a man with naked feet. Though the man with the boots had walked both ways, I saw that a struggle had taken place near the road. When I examined the hall window with my lens, I could make out faint markings where a wet foot had been placed coming in. Your father had told me that you were dressed only in certain trousers. When I learned further that you wanted five minutes outside the house, it was obvious you hoped to find the missing jewels where the struggle had taken place. Hmm. Well, since you have it all down just the way it happened, why do you need me? Because of Sir George Burnwell. You know what an astute villain he is. He knows because of the nature of the theft, our hands will be tied in the matter of prosecution. Also, now, he has an extra ally in May. Your father won't want to involve her and his home in that sort of scandal. I still don't see how I can help. Simply tell me that you will testify against Sir George Burnwell in court if it should come to that. Mr. Holmes, I give you my word. Holmes sent me off after that interview with instructions to fetch Alexander Holder to Baker Street and wait there for his return. He was off to see Sir George Burnwell at the club. Ah, good morning, Mr. Holmes. Back for revenge, I fancy. I don't mind confessing that you deserve it. My good luck was outrageous. Shall we go to the card room? I think a small private room would be more suitable for the matter I wish to discuss. <laughs> There's a small room off the bar which would prove just the thing. Ah, here we are. Now, what exactly did you wish, Mr. Holmes? The three gems you stole from the barrel coronet. I really don't believe I heard you correctly. Let's not waste each other's time. I know you for what you are. Gamesman, cheat, corrupter, and seducer of women. And now thief. So if you please, the gems. Dear chap, I suggest you see a physician. I can recommend an excellent man, by the way. He's in Harley Street, name of Langley. Now, I wish you good day. Before you open this door again... I've just come from the prison cell of Arthur Holder. I explained the evidence I have gathered to him, and he has agreed to testify against you in court. No, oh, I can't see this thing being brought up in court, old chap. You know, a national scandal. One of the realm's oldest and most honored families putting up national treasure for a loan. It would be distasteful, surely. But remember that Alexander Holder was willing to bring his son to court and let him stand trial when he believed the boy to be guilty. Do you think he'll show any mercy towards you? Ah. Yes, well, that does put things in a rather different... Uh... I shouldn't if I were you. As you see, I came armed. No offense, old chap. I just thought I'd... Add murder to your list. Not a chance. Never. Just mean to bash you over the head and get out of the country. <laughs> I am prepared to offer you a deal. Aha. Now, that's more the kind of talk I like to hear. And what? Did you have in mind? No prosecution. You can get clear of the country, just return the stones. Mm, I'm afraid I can't do that, old chap. I'm prepared to pay. How much? One thousand pounds apiece. Why, dash it all, I only got six hundred for the three. From whom? Look here, I think I can do my own bargaining. Do I have to restate my position? You will let me have the name of the man who has the stones, or... 
I think you're bluffing. I may just call it, but... Mr. Holmes, what are you doing with those cards? Going to demonstrate the art of dealing seconds, which I shall be glad to demonstrate to your foolish club members. Your fellow club members whom you've cheated over the years, unless you give me the man's name. Ah. Very well. 600 for the three... Just goes to show that a gentleman should never try to do a business deal. No. They should stick to cheating at cards. I brought Alexander Holder to our headquarters in Baker Street. And while we waited for Holmes, I told him as much as I could of the story clearing his son of the theft. And he was saddened to learn of his niece Mary's weakness but still most anxious about the recovery of the stones. Finally, Holmes arrived. He looked fatigued. Ah, thank you, Watson, for having Mr. Holder here. There you are, Mr. Holder. The missing stones still intact in their settings. Uh, I'm saved. Saved. How can I ever repay you, Mr. Holmes? With a check for £4,150. Uh, I, 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 I shall make it ten. No need, no need. I paid 3000 for the stones, 150 for expenses, and 1000 for the fee. But there is one other thing you owe, Mr. Holder. Name the sum, sir. Name it. The debt is not to me. You owe a very humble apology to your son, who acted most gallantly throughout the whole affair. <laughs> He shall have it as soon as I can deliver it in person. And what of poor Mary? Can your skill help me there? She, sir, is wherever Sir George Burnwell is. And that should be sufficient punishment for her sins, whatever they may be. moralist, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, consigns Mary to her just punishment. He evidently wasn't a believer in the romantic notion of the world well lost for love. Romance wasn't Doyle's strong suit. Mystery, adventure, and deductive reasoning were his specialties. And they were enough to gain him a place among the immortals of literature. I'll be back shortly. several railroad stations in London. But one of the unanswered puzzles that has tormented aficionados of Sherlock Holmes tales is that Holmes always took a train from either Waterloo Station, Charing Cross, or Paddington. There's really no satisfactory explanation ever been offered why he never left from Euston, King's Cross, or Liverpool Street. All perfectly good stations but not for Sherlock Holmes. Our cast included Kevin McCarthy, Court Benson, Russell Horton, and Catherine Byers. The entire production was under the direction of Hyman Brown. This is E.G. Marshall inviting you to return to our mystery theater for another adventure in the macabre. Until next time, pleasant dreams.
So as the large squeaking door closes for yet another week, we would just like to uh, say we hope you enjoyed these two uh, not necessarily obscure Sherlock Holmes radio shows, but at least two that we consider to be pretty darn good. Thank you for choosing these, Beth. I, uh, out of all of them, I don't. I, I, these are definitely two that I would not have chosen just because I would have started with some kind of overview list, trying and working my brain, trying to find some list that somebody put together of the best or the, this, that, or the other. But picking uh, some that are less well known is probably a good path to take. So. Thank you. Uh, do you do you think this would be a good a good thing to do uh, in the future again? Find a couple more that are uh, possibly relatively obscure and, and see what we can find. Yeah, we can definitely do that. I enjoyed it, and I just I thought this was a good place for somebody new if someone hadn't tried the radio shows before. Yeah, it, it, these are these two were a good introduction because they're very interesting and they have a lot of Holmes deduction in them. So it. it I think they're. I think they're a good intro. I think the barrel cornet really does show. It's a. It's a great example that shows you how Holmes' mind works, because it's. A, it's a great for great one once he's laid it all out to see how he was able to piece it together. It's an effective little mystery, and it's a really well thought out one, as the Conan Doyle stories so often were. So, uh, once again, I am Rod Barnett. And I am Beth Morris. And we would like to thank you for joining us, and uh, we will talk to you again soon. I fell upon a Tuesday when I had just got down to work, and everything went great. A bus Wednesday Thought a vacation Well deserved And all my edges Parade Address your Amid all the vulgar cheery crowds And a boy cries for his dog Stolen by a reptile His mother explains he surely drowned As he weeps upon a log And all my readers sing Oh, midlist offer
Shuffling homeward I check the receiver on the phone No messages returned So I started up a new thing Something about the sea 